Hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I'm a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all the great reviews on iTunes and the feedback from everyone. If you like listening to the podcast, please leave us a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. As you may know, I have created a PowerPoint slide presentation for patients that is available on the chiropracticscience.com website. The presentation provides snippets of educational information from the chiropractic and related scientific literature from 200 peer-reviewed articles, 40 of which are from 2016, and I'll be adding a lot more slides to include the last half of the year of 2016 and the first part of 2017 to the presentation. So those should be available in a few months. As for the podcast, my goals for producing these chiropractic research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research, to encourage collaboration of researchers, and to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to become chiropractic scientists. I'd also like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. Well, let's get to the interview with Dr. Jonathan Field. Dr. Field is a clinical and NHS services lead at Back to Health Partnership, providing community-based musculoskeletal services to NHS and private patients. He has an active interest in research particularly relating to the impact of non-physical factors on recovery of chiropractic patients and the use of patients' reports of changes in their health status and their experiences with care. This interest has been developed through a Master's of Science and most recently by submission of his PhD thesis on collecting and predicting patient-reported outcomes in chiropractic practice. Dr. Field chairs the pain faculty of the RCC, which seeks to help chiropractors improve their evidence-based management of patients presenting with the symptom of pain. To help practices interested in patient-centered and outcome-focused care, Dr. Field has developed the care response system to facilitate the collection and collation of PROM and PREM data. This system is provided free to any practitioner who wishes to use it, and it has been adopted by over 200 clinicians around Europe and Australasia thanks to funding from the European Chiropractic Union and the European Academy of Chiropractic, and it's available in seven languages. Dr. Field, it's an honor to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Smith. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, let's start with how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor. I come from a medical family. My father was a general practitioner. My uncle was an anesthetist, and I was heading down that route of a medical career. And I've always had quite an engineering bent to my brain, just the way my thinking works. I was introduced to a, a chiropractor chap called Frank Hunt, close to where I live, who's a friend of my parents, uh, and something very much clicked for me. This, this was this was the marriage between um, the caring and healthcare that I'd grown up with and I wanted to be involved with, uh, and the engineering where I kind of felt drawn as a drawn as a person, uh, and that led me into the Anglo-European College of Chiropractic. 
That's terrific. So when, uh, if you don't mind me asking, when, when did you uh, become a chiropractor? I graduated in uh, 1987. First, first uh, left college and went into private practice. Okay, so you went into private practice right away, and then have you always been in practice? Yeah, I've been continuously in practice for about 31 one years now, um, ma- mainly in private practice, but increasingly um, over the last three years, I've been uh, employed in a hospital uh, to help run a spinal service at a hospital level. That's terrific. So along the way, how did you become interested in research? Um, in the early 2000s, I had a, an, a, an ankle injury. I was walking back to my office after lunch one day, and I just fell off the curb and fractured my tibia. Um, and you know, it was a lot of pain, but it settled down, as you'd, you'd expect to, uh, over about six weeks. But unfortunately, a year later, while I was trampolining with my young daughter, the um, talus collapsed. And what we hadn't realized was that the uh, blood supply had been compromised in the original fracture, and the top of the talus had become avascular. Uh, and I had a year of non-weight bearing. Uh, and I realized very, very quickly into my convalescence that actually my ankle problem was going to be the least of my troubles if I kept watching daytime TV in the UK. I was going to have lots of mental health issues. Uh, and so I started to look around for something to do. And I, I was kind of draw, drawn to research, some research questions. My feeling is that a lot of clinicians would like to get involved in research, but because of the practicalities of uh, life and you know, clinical life and family life and the way things go, we, we never really get that time to pause and to to rethink. And that year off really gave me that. That's terrific. So can you tell us just a little bit about your PhD studies and your master's studies? So um, during my uh, first master's degree, we we spent quite a lot of time looking at uh, chiropractic practice and and, and the changing paradigm um, away from uh, possibly health outcomes, which are measured by things the doctor could see. So, you know, range of motion and and power towards focusing more on things that the patient felt was important. So the patient's reports, their outcome and their clinical priorities. Um, uh, and uh, Professor Jenny Bolton from the Young European College of Chiropractic introduced me to uh, patient-reported outcome measures. Um, we started collecting those in our practice, initially on, on paper-based forms, um, and it, I, I became surprised when I was looking at the results of the, of the data that we were collecting that quite a lot of patients weren't getting better. About 75% of our patients were reporting a good response to care, but about 25% of our patients weren't. Uh, and I couldn't work out why some patients weren't getting better and some patients were getting better. So the uh, initial cut of my research was trying to explore factors that might predict outcomes in patients presented to chiropractors with spinal pain. Okay, cool. Has has that also encompassed some of your work throughout the PhD as well? Yeah, that's right. So the more I became involved in looking at factors that might help predict which patients would and wouldn't respond to the care that we're providing... Um, I started looking at, we moved away from looking at physical factors. There's very, very little on examination that has any predictive ability. And we started looking at non-physical pre- uh, physical practice or psychological factors, the impacts of um, feelings uh, and, and emotions and beliefs. Uh, and at the same time as we're doing that, we put together a more robust data collection tool, which I think we're going to talk about later on, um, to collect the uh, the information from the patients to do the studies and to better evaluate our, our services. Um, and the, I was publishing the, um, the data as, as we're answering the different research questions. Uh, and I was supposed to be doing a, a traditional root PhD through looking um, at the impact of non-physical factors on uh, outcome in chiropractic care. 
Um, but like a lot of people doing a PhD, I was also running a busy, busy life. I'd taken on running some um, government-funded um, healthcare services, and I wasn't really getting around to writing up my uh, thesis. Uh, and one, the head of my school heard me uh, presenting a lecture in South Africa, um, and, and he spoke to me about it. And we realised that I'd, the amount of work I was putting into publication was probably equivalent to a traditional PhD. And so we changed the focus of the PhD from a PhD uh, down a traditional route of doing a couple of trials and writing them up to what's called a PhD by publication. So I was able to take um, eight of the papers I've published in the last few years uh, and three of the abstracts I've produced uh, and write them up into a single narrative because they're, they're, they're all based around this idea of collecting patient data, the problems of collecting data, the use of collecting patient data, and the things that can predict the results the patient's tell, data tells us the patients are, are getting. And that's what my PhD thesis compromises. That's terrific. So yeah, I, I've got a good sense for what a day in your life is like now with <laughs> seeing patients and trying to write up articles. Uh, it, it's fun, but it's hectic, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really complicated trying to fit the balance. And I think you need to be very focused if you're going to do any sort of research activity, you're quite single minded about it. Uh, at times and, and there's no doubt at all if you're trying to run a private practice and you're trying to run a, uh, a family uh, the other things do suffer um, sometimes but you need to make those sacrifices possibly uh, to achieve the outcomes for sure well you've published in a variety of peer-reviewed journals and during this interview i'd like to talk about a few of those papers and certainly uh, we'll get to care response as well so let's just go ahead and and dive in here and the first paper comes from uh, journal Pain News, and it was titled Reconceptualizing Patient-Reported Outcome Measures and What They Could Mean for Your Clinical Practice. And so this is uh, really important for chiropractors, and I'm sure many chiropractors, if not all chiropractors at some point have heard of patient-reported outcome measures, but could you tell us what this paper was about? And and first of all, what are patient-reported outcome measures? Patient-reported outcome measures, which are often shortened to PROMs, are essentially what they say on the tin. They are reports that the patient completes to tell us how they're doing. And usually they're measuring um, items of health status, so um, how much discomfort a patient is in, any functional limitations they've got, maybe um, how their mood has been recently. So it's it's a measure of health status. Uh, If you measure a patient's health status before a period of care and you measure a patient's health status at the end of a period of care, you might get some information about the impact of that care on the on the on the patient, and, and, and has the care actually added value? We need to be a little bit careful because, of course, in clinical practice, we haven't got a control group. We're not running an RCT, uh, and patients may improve. And luckily, most patients do improve when they see a chiropractor. But we can't say for certain sure it's because of anything in particular the chiropractor's doing. We can't say for sure if it's the adjustment or the exercises or the advice or some combination of those. Yeah, good point. I I really like to that you mentioned that because it's such a, an important thing. And I just read a paper by Dr. Newell and colleagues on contextualized care and and how that's so important. And so you know how exercise and all the things that you just mentioned are are a component of this. So what what impact do you see that uh, proms have in clinical practice? Proms can impact in a, in a range of ways in, in clinical practice. Um, and the starting point of this article really was, if we look back, traditionally PROMs have been used to evaluate the outcomes of trials, used a lot in randomized controlled studies. So people have possibly heard of things such as the Roland Morris or the Revised Ulcerous 3 or the Bournemouth questionnaire. 
which measure the health status of patients around uh, lower back pain in, in particular. And lots of trials ask patients to complete these assessment tools before their first visit. And then at the end of the uh, period of uh, the intervention, whatever's being tested, and then possibly at a period of time um, later. And so and we look, at, look for change in, in scores on the questionnaires, and we actually use those to, to uh, form an opinion as if the patients had real and worthwhile uh, improvement in their, in their health. What we're moving on to now is actually the use of PROMS in day-to-day clinical practice. Uh, as I said earlier, um, I run some um, clinical services for, for the National Health Service in the UK, and our services are a commission, so somebody decides if they're worthwhile to actually um, buy the service and to actually fund them and then to renew the contracts. Uh, and patient-reported outcome measures are one of the key determinants of the success of these contracts. So a, a PROM can be used to assess uh, a patient's response. It can also be used to assess the success of a service with a particular uh, patient population. What we're finding, though, is that you can use them in much more subtle ways. Uh, so it, it appears that uh, if uh, doctors, if clinicians and patients complete PROMs together, or if, they, if, if, if they discuss the results of a uh, patient-reported outcome measure between themselves, it can actually enhance the doctor's understanding of what's important to a patient about their presentation. And an example might be the Bournemouth questionnaire, which is, is a very widely used PROM in uh, chiropractic practice. In fact, it was de- developed specifically uh, for chiropractors. Um, and it asks about a range of things that might affect somebody with spinal pain. So it asks about pain. It asks about the impact of pain on daily life and the effect of work on the pain. But it also asks about their, their mood. Are they feeling low? Are they feeling anxious? And it's not unusual in the real world to see a patient whose pain has fallen maybe from a score of six to a score of four, which is anxiety level has gone up. Maybe before it was quite a low score, and now they're, they're coming in with, a, with an anxiety score, which is much higher than their pain score. And if you, if you see that on a prompt questionnaire, you can actually have the discussion with the patient about that. And quite, quite often, it actually opens up avenues within the patient's life that are really, really significant to them, which we would actually miss otherwise if we just see ourselves as treating the, the, the physical aspect of their spinal problem. And it's not unusual for the things that are identified to be things that we can actually help with, maybe not always providing care directly ourselves, but signposting off to other services or just alerting patients to be, to be aware of things that can have an impact on their, on their health. So PROMs can deepen the understanding between the, the clinician and the patient. It can deepen what's called the patient-centeredness of the care, so we're, we're centering our care on what's important. We, in our practice, we find they're very, very useful at key decision points in care. So, for an example, there's been quite a lot of research done uh, around Europe. And we know that if a patient hasn't had a significant improvement in their PROM scores over the first two weeks of care, over the first about three, four sessions of care, then they're probably not going to get meaningful benefit from care, even if you give them another 40 sessions. So you need to be talking about changing the care that you're providing. So either uh, changing the focus, maybe to be aimed at more rehabilitation or discussing activation or other barriers to actually getting themselves going so problems can actually help with uh, decision making and probably more importantly actually we're sharing that decision making so you can explain to the patient why we've had we've had we've had four sessions and although you're saying you're telling me you're feeling a little bit looser overall the results of these prom scores are tell us it's not really making a, a, a big enough difference to your to your life and we don't have the confidence now that if we carry on the path we're on we're going to lead you to the the place that you want to get to with, with your health so we'd like to change direction so, so the, 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 there's more nuanced ways that we can start using PROM data at a practice level. Uh, what I find particularly exciting is when we start to put PROM data together uh, into big data so we can start to collate the results of all the doctors in a particular clinic. And even better, if you can get all the doctors in a particular area or a particular country or a particular continent together, we can get very, very large blocks of data and we can get some really robust answers to clinical questions. 
Uh, an example from my practice is that for a number of years, I've been sitting on a, uh, a panel looking at commissioning services for spinal pain. And we had a very circular argument about what the evidence said about the effectiveness of chiropractic services. Um, and the argument seemed to go something like, first of all, that there was no evidence for the effectiveness of chiropractic. We, we kind of demonstrated through RCTs there was good evidence for the effectiveness of chiropractic. But then possibly quite rightly so, the uh, colleagues around the table, the, the, the physical therapists and the rheumatologists, the orthopedic consultants were saying, well, there isn't evidence that chiropractic may, might be better in these populations. It's been studied in, but the difference is really quite small. There's not a very large uh, statistical difference between the care that chiropractors give and others give. And what I was able to do one day was actually put some data on the table and say, look, I can demonstrate that for the last 2,000 patients who've presented to me, um, 78% have actually got better and greater than 99% were very happy with the care they would provided. Can anybody else here say about their service? Uh, and no one else around the table had that sort of data available to them. And a decision was made to commission us as a provider of spinal care service to this particular area in the UK and the service has proved really popular and we're now providing half of the, of, of the non-hospital based um, spinal care now and that's that's the way that PROMS data, big PROMS data can actually be used to influence uh, decision making and actually shape commissioning decisions. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love the use of that and and I love being able to take certain time points in the care as you mentioned and step back and get a big overview of what's going on with a particular person and what they may need if they may need exercise or some counseling or whatever the case may be. That's uh, that's great. I, I really love that. Uh, the next paper that I'd like to talk about to piggyback on the paper we just talked about was uh, in the Quality of Life Research Journal, and this is the impact of patient-reported outcome measures in clinical practice for pain, a systematic review. Can you guide us through that paper? Yes, certainly. This was a paper written um, together with some, some colleagues, particularly uh, Michelle Holmes, who uh, I hope will be a bright star in the chiropractic research firmament in the future. She's currently doing a PhD at uh, Portsmouth University, uh, sorry, to the Southampton University, uh, which I'm helping supervise her for. Uh, and what we wanted to do is we actually wanted to try and bring together all the papers which are published so far are on the impact of patient reporting outcomes uh, on clinical practice. So what effect do does collecting this data and using this data actually have on the clinical practice? Does it change what the practitioner does? And does it make any difference to the health outcomes of the patients? Uh, and we wanted to include all data. So we wanted to include papers which both include qualitative and quantitative methodologies. And so we need to find quite a, a, a we use quite an unusual approach to bring this all together. And we, we use an approach called a critical interpretive synthesis, uh, which is a way that you you um, you collate the data, you tabulate the data from qualitative and quantitative studies, and you can draw themes out from it. And then you can then look back at the evidence from the papers to actually support support those themes. Uh, and what we were able to show was, as I've already mentioned, that PROMS can do more than just evaluate the success of a service or demonstrate the the, the, um, the clinical outcomes that one particular doctor or uh, practice is getting. Uh, it appears to be able to help with clinical decision makings. Uh, decision making, it, it informs um, service purchases and it can actually help uh, set remuneration in some of the more um, enlightened commissioning methods where people are paid by results rather than just for, for giving treatment. But something that emerged, which, which was very, very interesting, we thought was very interesting, was that PROMS might actually be therapeutically active. There is a suggestion, it's, it's not fact for sure, but there's a strong suggestion that patients who are actually asked to 
reflect on their health status and write the results down on these questionnaires and then discuss the, the, the results from the questionnaires with their caregiver actually do better because they've completed the questionnaires. So PROMS might be therapeutically active. We've known for a while in randomized controlled studies that patients who take part in a study do better than patients with the same condition given the same treatment outside the study. And it, it may well be because the patient feels the people listening to them more closely, they, they, they feel they're more important because they're part of the study. And this is what Michelle is, is directing her, her PhD towards. Oh, that's terrific. Well, uh, the, what you just said last uh, strikes a chord with me. And that is, uh, for example, I, I'll get patients that come in and they would indicate to me verbally that they don't think they've made much improvement. But when you repeat the proms, they realize, hey, wow, I I can walk better. I don't re- I don't recall that I didn't walk well before, but <laughs> I walk better and I I do feel less pain and uh, so on and so forth. So I th- I think you're right. The the proms in and of themselves uh, provide a lot of guidance, a lot of insight, and uh, it it doesn't surprise me that they could be part of the therapeutic endeavor. That's that's amazing. I like your word insight. I think that's exactly what they that they can help to develop. Great. So what are uh, some specific patient-reported outcome measures that you might recommend chiropractors use in practice? There are essentially three types of patient-reported outcome. Um, There are patient-reported outcomes that measure health status for a particular condition. So we've we've talked about the, or mentioned the Bournemouth questionnaire, uh, which I think is a really, really good one for chiropractors. It's shown to be very responsive in our populations. Uh, It's biopsychosocial, measuring multiple aspects of a patient's uh, presentation. Uh, and it's quite an easy one to to score and to explain to patients. You can have um, general quality of life uh, questionnaires. Um, in in uh, Europe, we use something called the EQ5D uh, quite frequently, which, which is five five questions about general health. And there's a sort of health thermometer, a little, little slider, which goes from 0 to 100 to equate general patients' general feelings of uh, well-being. Um, and the, the, the EQ5D is much less responsive because it's looking at whole of life uh, factors rather than condition specific factors, but it does catch some of the things that maybe the um, condition specific ones don't. But in day to day clinical practice, our experience has been that these whole of life measures aren't responsive enough. You know, they're very good at measuring people who are you know, very, very, very ill compared to people who are very, very well. But somebody who's got some, um, some, some back pain, some stiffness, who then recovers doesn't make a big enough difference to for it to register well on those questionnaires. Um, and the last um, sort of proms uh, is a, to a general health status or a patient's recollection of their general health status, something called a patient's global impression of change. And a patient, when we ask a question, which may say something like, thinking back to how you were before your first visit, would you rate your general health status as? It would be a scale ranging from much worse through to much, um, much better. The advantage of using global impression of chain scales over the condition-specific ones is the patient doesn't have to. Um, it, so it's, it's, they're much they're much shorter. They're very very brief. They tend to be single, single items. So, Doctor Field, do you think every chiropractor should use PROMs? And then, if so, how frequently should we use them? I think that in the future, everyone's going to have to use PROMs. I think that PROMs are really useful both if we care about our patients and we want to do the best for our patients. Because without the information PROMS gives us, the evidence tells us we don't always make the best decisions or know when to make the decisions for our patients' care. So I think during care, it's really important we use PROMS. I think that in order to demonstrate the results that we get in chiropractic offices, and we get some really, really good results, 
it seems crazy that we're not collecting data to actually tell the world the results that we're we're getting. So I think routine collection of problems is really, really important um, to, to explain what happens in our offices and uh, the, the patient's experiences with it. I think there are different audiences for the PROMS data that we uh, that we collect. Uh, I, I know already in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in the United States, um, patients are becoming much better educated. They're, they're uh, looking around to find a healthcare provider who's most likely to benefit them. And I think healthcare providers who are actually on their website or, or other publications can actually say the results they get, you know, to be able to say, you know, 68% or 85% of our patients with a particular condition or group of conditions uh, reports a good benefit and what percentage of patients who've come in think it was a, you know, a good use of their time, they're, they're happy with their experience. Patients are much more likely to choose to go to those doctors than doctors who don't have that, inf- make that information available. So that sort of clinical transparency is really important. Um, I know certainly in, in Europe, that when people are looking to refer a patient uh, to another healthcare professional, they want to have some confidence that the person they're referring them to is not only likely to um, help improve the patient improve as much as they can, but also the patient's going to be happy with that referral. They're going to be satisfied with what happens. So collecting PROM data and its counterpart, which is the patient experience measures or PREM data, is really useful when we're talking to and communicating uh, with people who refer to us, be it other uh, physicians or general practitioners or uh, insurance companies, because they want that information. Uh, I think if we're talking to people who are purchasing overall services, again, it could be health maintenance organizations or, or state-funded healthcare, to have big blocks of real-world data is really, really useful. You know, a randomized control study may very well demonstrate that uh, chiropractic has particular benefits, but that data only really talks about those chiropractors who took part in the study and that particular patient population. How do we know that it's actually what's going on, the same results as actually what's being achieved uh, in the offices of other doctors around the country or, or around the world. Well, if people are collecting PROM data and they can actually publish that PROM data and, and use it to illustrate what they're doing, it gives people an awful lot more confidence um, in the referrals that they're, that they're making. So I, I strongly feel that for both uh, clinical reasons to improve the care that we're, uh, we're providing uh, and for financial reasons to, to grow our businesses to better serve our communities, PROM data is going is, is to be really important. Uh, a third arm to it is that PROM data can actually give us um, pointers as to where we might improve. So if, I, if I've been collecting PROM data for one of my clinics for, say, the last 12 months, and I can bring it all together, uh, and I can look at the percentage of maybe I'm interested in you know, women over the age of 65 with neck pain, if I can look at the results those patients have given us, and I can compare that to the same population of patients from the year before, I can either reassure myself that my service hasn't uh, deteriorated at all, or even better, if I've made some changes to my service, I'll be able to demonstrate those changes have led to a positive outcome in terms of uh, patients' improvement of their uh, healthcare changes in their health or in their experience, their satisfaction with their care. Increasingly, uh, doctors are being asked to revalidate to, uh, to, to justify their continuing registration. Uh, and my feeling strongly is that part of revalidation ought to be that doctors demonstrate they're continuing to get better. Well, PROM data is a really, really good way of doing that. If we go out to the people who are using our services, our patients, uh, and we find out the impact of our services on those patients and their experience with our care, and we can be demonstrated to have reflected on that and to make some changes to improve that, I think that is quite a good justification for us to maintain our, our, our registration to stay valid and in, in practice. Terrific. Well, here in, the, here in North America, we might say it's a no-brainer to use it. Well, uh, 
Let's talk about another paper, and that was uh, clinical outcomes in a large cohort of musculoskeletal patients undergoing chiropractic care in the UK, a comparison of self and National Health Service referred routes. And that was published in JMPT in 2016. Could you uh, give us some context for those of us who don't live in the UK? What is the NHS and how are chiropractors paid in the UK? So the NHS is the National Health Service uh, in, in the UK. We're very proud of the National Health Service. National Health Service provides free health care to all UK citizens. Uh, it's free at the point of use. So anybody can walk into a, a general practitioner's clinic if they're registered with them or be referred into a hospital and have investigations and treatment without paying. Well, of course, we do pay, but we pay through our taxes. We don't, we don't pay at the, uh, at the point of use. The, um, the UK, like all of the world, is going through a financially uh, complicated time at the moment, and there's a lot of rationing of money. There's very limited money around, although NHS budgets have been fairly well ring-fenced. But there's pressure on the NHS to, be- to better spend its money. And, and every day in our newspapers, you know, there, there's, there's people saying we need to be spending more money or better spending our money um, on the National Health, spend of, uh, National Health Service spend. Chiropractic tradition in the UK has been outside the National Health Service. So chiropractors have existed as cash practices or insurance-based um, practices. Um, we've done quite, quite a few, so some really, I think, probably some quite well-known uh, randomised control studies comparing chiropractic services to, um, to hospital services in the United Kingdom. But they've always been private services. Um, and there's been some criticism of the studies that it's, it's possible that one of the reasons that patients do better in some of these studies is they've been seeing in chiropractors private offices rather than in a hospital setting which might be a bit a bit busy a bit less a little bit less um, a little bit less personal um, about I'm thinking of 2012 2013 there became, became an opportunity through some um, innovative commissioning routes for non-traditional service purchase uh, service providers such as um, chiropractors to actually bid to provide services for the National Health Service um, and uh, I, I was successful in part of Back to Health, which is which is a partnership that I'm, I'm clinical lead for uh, in bidding for some of these contracts. And I talked a little bit about the how we use Prom Data to help us help us get that, and we've been providing these services um, ever since. It now makes up the majority of, of the work that I do. But what one thing that's never been done is to actually see is we know chiropractic works really really well in the private practice setting in a community based setting, but does chiropractic work well? If it's in a, a state-funded setting where patients are referred in from their general practitioners, and there's lots of constraints of process, so there's a limited number of treatment sessions care patients have, and there's certainly an awful lot more paperwork uh, around the treating of the patients. So what we did in this paper, and you've already mentioned uh, Dr. Dave Newell, uh, one of his papers earlier on, uh, Dave and I published uh, quite a lot together. What we did is we, we took quite a large cohort of data uh, this is routinely collected from data. This is, this is data we just collect as part of our normal practice activity. Uh, we took data from about 8,500 patients who have been through our, our clinical services, about half of whom had accessed us through the NHS referral route that was state-funded, and half of whom had accessed us um, privately, so more, more, more traditional chiropractic groups. And we just did a comparison. We said, you know, are there differences between the two groups? And if there are differences between the two groups, does it affect their, their outcome? Is, is chiropractic a good fit for a state-funded um, healthcare service? That's great. So what did you find out? What did we find out? We've, we found that um, the, uh, the, the state-referred patients are generally a lot more ill on quite a few health domains 
uh, they had more um, adverse indices. So they, they, they had their pain for longer. They had more um, comorbidity. Um, yeah, they're more likely to have a widespread pain. They're more likely to have um, psychological problems. Um, we didn't actually look for it, but there's a strong suspicion that they're all might, more, more likely to have social problems um, as well. And in fact, the only domains across all the ones we looked at where they were exactly the same between the two groups was the patients with the same age, if they presented privately or on the NHS, uh, the proportion of patients, the patients that had shoulder pain as well as back pain, uh, and the proportions of patients who had some degree of arm pain. But on every other domain we looked at, the, the um, NHS patients were, were, were less well than the, um, the, the private patients. In terms of the health outcomes, the private patients uh, at a crude level did um, did better. So uh, on, on, on that, the health outcomes, we saw about 79% of the um, private patients uh, had improved uh, and, and had, a, had a benefit which lasted for at least three months after care, compared to 68% of the um, NHS patients. So less of them had improved. When we did some multivariate analysis, so we actually included some of the confounding factors, some of the fact that they were more ill when they came in, we actually found the difference disappeared. So the, the patients were doing less well because they were more ill. They weren't doing less well because overall they were less suited to, um, to chiropractic care. So had a private patient presented with the same comorbidities as the NHS patients, we'd have actually achieved the same results from them. What was interesting in the study, I thought was very interesting in the study, when we looked at um, patient satisfaction scores, the um, uh, NHS patients were actually much more satisfied with their care than the private patients were. Both, both were over 98% satisfied, but the, um, uh, the, uh, the NHS patients we had over 90% over were very satisfied with their care, so the, their, their, their expectations were significantly exceeded uh, and I think this is probably one of the reasons that our service has continued to grow quite dramatically and a lot of the other providers providing care possibly through physiotherapy services or phys physical therapists, what you call it in the US, um, have actually dropped out. They've actually lost their contract. Now, our, our, our contract's just been renewed for another three years. Well, that is really terrific. You know, one of the things that we keep seeing in research is that patients that come to chiropractors tend to have less comorbid conditions, at least here in the United States. And so hearing about this study is just fantastic that, you know, their experience was very positive that they uh, perceived that they got a lot out of it and they did get a lot out of it and that you're able to document this in, in a study and be able to show it to insurers or, or just the patients themselves. And I think that's phenomenal. I mean, if we want to see more people uh, in the public that, come to a chiropractor, then we're going to have to start seeing more people with comorbid conditions. And, uh, and I just think that's a, a brilliant study. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Well, let's talk about care response. Care response is a, a phenomenal uh, system that you have uh, put together. And I just learned about it not, not too long ago, about a month or two ago. So could, could you guide us through what care response is and how it came about? Yes, so care response is an electronic system for collecting patient reported outcome, patient reported experience measures. Collecting PROMs and PREMs in real world clinical practices is complicated. You can end up with lots of bits of paper um, flying around the office. You can have a filing cabinet full of files with bits of paper with patient scores in it. Um, but there's not really a whole lot of use unless you can actually bring it together, unless you can collate it all. Um, uh, 
score the questionnaires. It's very nice to have the results uh, in a graphical format. So actually, it displays a graph, which makes it easy to discuss and explain to the patients. Um, it's also quite expensive to run paper-based problem systems. So in, in the early days of our system, we were actually uh, sending out patient assessments by by post. And I think we spent something like nine thousand uh, United Kingdom pounds uh, in the first year, so spending about wow. uh, two pounds fifty, two pounds thirty for each, each patient. By the time we you know, printed it, stuck it in an envelope with a reply paid envelope, sent it out. They hadn't replied within four days. Printed off another one, stuck it in an envelope, sent sent it out. You know, a proportion got sent back and we got charged for those. So it, it, it ended up being fairly expensive. Now, in terms of an overall cost of a, a package of care for a patient, you know, a couple of pounds isn't is, isn't a lot if they're paying 30 or 40 pounds per visit, which is what you typically pay in the United Kingdom. But it still adds up and it's still a barrier to um, to completing the paperwork. Um, and, and there's quite a few studies which have identified these sort of process barriers to completing paperwork, uh, paper forms. Uh, and also a major, major issue with paper forms is that patients get it wrong. We, we, we know that between 10 and 30 percent of paper forms that patients complete are completed incorrectly or inappropriately. And it's, we have the same problem if we're looking at randomized control studies. It's typically uh, a rate of about 12 to 15 percent of forms come back incorrectly com- completed. What we've done with care response is we've developed uh, an electronic system. Uh, and the idea is it's very, very light touch. So if the clinics that use it, there's very little work. So the clinic will enter the patient's uh, their name, they'll enter their date of birth, and then to the date of the patient's first visit to the uh, to the clinic, and they essentially hit a go button, uh, and the care response system will then generate uh, an assessment before the first visit and mail it out to the patient. And this is usually done at the same time as the patient's on the phone to the receptionist booking their initial appointment. But it's usually done while they're on the phone. It's, it's, it's very very quick indeed. The patient completes the assessment online, hits a submit button, and it then comes back to the office where the doctor can look at it or a receptionist can print it off and give it to the doctor. Uh, and then at timed intervals afterwards, Care Response sends out follow-on assessment. So it sends one out at 14 days. And we use 14 days, as I've already touched on, because the evidence is if patients aren't showing significant change by 14 days, they're not going to get better however much treatment we give them. So we won't be looking to discuss with them changes in the care that we're offering them. We send one out at 30 days, because by the end of the first month, most patients are reaching the end of a phase of, uh, of active ch- chiropractic care. And we send another one out at three months. And the idea is we want to see is has there any benefits the patient's got during the phase of active care been lasting, whether or not they're on some sort of supportive or maintenance care. And so we send out these three assessments and the system sends them out. If the patient hasn't completed an assessment uh, within two days, it sends a repeated request out by email for the patient to, to com- complete it. When a patient completes any of these assessments, the, uh, the doctor will get an email which summarizes the results of the patients. It's a pseudo-anonymized, so there's no patient's names or date of birth on it. There's a, there's a code number or a file number the patient can, the, the doctor can look the patient up in more detail. If the, patient, if the doctor logs on to the care response system with the patient, it will display the results as a graph. So it's very easy to disc- you know, discuss with the patient. If the graph is going downwards, the patient's getting better. If the graph is going upwards, things aren't going as you'd hope it would be. You might want to have a discussion with the patient. The system enables you to generate assessments at any time. So if you're sitting in a treatment room with a patient and you want to have a discussion about whether to move from um, active care to supportive care or to discharge the patient or refer them away, you can actually create a new assessment literally there and then with the patient and actually complete it in the treatment room with them if you want. And it only takes a couple of minutes to do it. You can then add those results onto the previous ones. You can have the discussion um, uh, and, and make a shared decision about where to go, where to go with it. The, um, the care response system 
it's got a lot of data security locked into it. Um, in the United Kingdom, and I know it's the same in the United States, we treat individual data with a very high degree of respect. So it's a, we, it's a data security and appropriate use of data is really important. Uh, with the care response system, the clinic that signs the patient up is what's called the data owner. And the care response system and, and me running it, I'm what's called the data processor. And it would actually be illegal for me to use anyone's data without their explicit express permission. So if a, if a clinic in the United States was using care response and they collect some information, I wouldn't be allowed to use that data, say, for, for, for um, publication, definitely not use it for marketing purposes or to contact the patient. I'd actually be uh, in breach of the law if that was to happen. With the permission of the clinic or with the consent of the patient, we certainly can use that data in our publications, and, and, and we do. I've just, I've just quoted you a study where we've had um, 8,000 patients in it. Uh, we've got about 100,000 patients worth of data in the care response system now. So there's some really, really rich data there uh, that we can start to use for answering um, clinical questions. The uh, care response system is entirely cloud-based. We use something called uh, Microsoft's uh, Azure service, which is a, a secure service run by the Microsoft Corporation. It's got a lot of information governance around it. It stores a lot of um, government health data um, uh, and other secure data. It's going to be a very... Um, secure platform. Uh, people are very unlikely to be able to hack in and extract the data. The all data in care response is encrypted. It's encrypted from the moment it leaves a user's computer to when it arrives at the care response server. Uh, it's stored in an encrypt encrypted way, and we divide the data up into uh, into, into files. So a, a patient might have a file which relates to them and their name and their date of birth, and there'll be another file which relates to their response to the different questionnaires. Both these files are encrypted but also the key that links the two of them to each other is also encrypted. So if someone can hack the system, they might have a file, have a load of outcome data, but we have no way of actually linking it back to individual patients. Uh, and every year in the UK, we have to pass a test called the Information and Governance uh, Tool, uh, sorry, Information Governance Test, um, which actually demonstrates the level of information uh, security that we're, we're providing. Um, Care Response is entirely cloud-based. There's no software to download onto a computer. Any device which can access the internet can run the care response software, so you can run it on your smartphone, or it's a bit small, but you can certainly run it on iPad, there's lots of things to do. Uh, you can run it on an old laptop, it doesn't need any particular um, particular power. Clinics sign up to it using an online web wizard. Uh, they register themselves with it, and then they can start using it straight away. It is entirely free. There are no charges for using it at all. We put no adverts in front of patients or clinicians. At the moment, it's entirely funded uh, by me and my Back to Health organisation. We have some support, uh, kind support from the Royal College of Chiropractors, which supports and promotes us. Uh, and recently we've gone multilingual, so the care response will display its questionnaires um, in whichever language a user's browser is set to, irrespective of the language the doctor sent it out in. So I might send it out from my browser in English. But if my, if my uh, patient is, is Spanish, when they receive the questionnaire, the questions will present to them in Spanish and they can answer it and then when it comes back to me the results will be presented in, in a in an English in an English format. Well I've I've listened to all you've said and and I just have a big smile on my face right now because of all the amazing uh, and and cool stuff that you're doing. This is fantastic. Can can the data that an individual chiropractor collects in their own clinic, could they use that data to, say, publish a, a case series or, or whatever they want to do with that? Uh, can, they, can they use that for a research publication? 
That's a really good question, Dr. Smith. So the answer is absolutely yes, that you can literally click on a button, set a date range, click on a button, and it will download you um, all your uh, all, all the patients you've, you've um, data you've collected in, in that period as a, as a large Excel spreadsheet, which you can then analyze in, in any which way you, you want to. You know, either you can use it for um, service evaluations within your own practice or, or subject to uh, the usual ethical requirements. You, you can actually go out and actually uh, actually publish on it. Yeah, very, very, very definitely. Wow, that that is phenomenal. I mean, this is this is one tool that could help just expand chiropractic research phenomenally. I love it. Yeah, I yeah, love it. Care Response has a very big research back end to it. I mean, we've had we've had four PhDs. Uh, go through the care response system and, and a researcher can be set up and patients can sign up to individual research studies which will give the give the researcher extra access to their patient's data with you know, with the consent of the patient and the uh, and the clinic we had a really nice example i had a um, physical therapist who was doing a phd and he'd invented some sort of clever whizzy laser-based machine for measuring patients range of motion very accurately and he wanted to look if restriction in range of motion was linked in some way to uh, lumbar spinal pain. And he was trying to collect a cohort of patients to put through this laser uh, machine. And he needed 30 patients with chronic spinal pain and 30 patients with acute spinal pain. And he defined acute uh, as less than one month in duration. And he very quickly collected the chronic spinal pain because our hospitals are full of them in the UK. Because by the time you've been through the referral processes, senior GP and got in, almost everyone's had pain for more than... Uh, a couple of months, it was very, very easy for him to collect that data, but he hadn't been able to over a two-year period collect a single patient with acute spinal pain. So we were able in some clinics to program care response, and if a patient, when they were completing their initial assessment online before the first visit to the chiropractic doctor's um, office, if they ticked a box to say they had spinal pain, there's a body diagram and patients click where their problem is. If they click that box, and they then clicked another box to say they'd had the pain for less than two weeks' duration, Care response will pop up a questionnaire and so there's this, there's this PhD study going on at the University of Brighton. Would you be interested in being contacted by the researcher, yes or no? And people who tipped yes, care response would then send an email to the researcher with the patient's contact detail and they would make contact and actually you know, go through what study involved and sign patients up. Um, within six six weeks, he collected all these really super acute patients that he was after for his, for his study. So it's, it's a really, really nice tool for that and actually putting researchers and patients uh, in touch with each other. Oh, that's brilliant. For those of us in the United States, is Care Response HIPAA compliant? Yes, it is. Yeah, the, the, the Microsoft Azure service we use is is fully HIPAA compliant for its um, data processing and data storage. Uh, our, our internal processes are um, uh, HIPAA compliant, uh, and we've got uh, contracts on our on our support site that you, you can actually sign up for where we, where we can we can become a, you know, one of your uh, business associates business associate of a u.s practice for data processing purposes oh terrific can other uh patient recorded reported outcome measures be added to care response the answer is yes they can and there's quite a lot in it as standard we use the bournemouth questionnaire and something called the mymop and the measure yourself medical outcome profile which is a is a um a uh, patient reported outcome. Your patients actually write their own questions. It says, you know, what, "What's your main symptom?" And patients might say, "I've got stiffness in my left buttock." And you know, what, you know what's your main limitation? Um, I can't push the children around the park for missions. And it repeats that over a period of time, and that works really well for patients who are sorry for um, clinics, but possibly more focused 
um, on um, health maintenance and wellness sort of approach rather than a, a symptomatic approach. The advantage to us tying people into a couple of patient reported outcome measures is that if all the doctor's offices who, who are using care response are using the same outcome measures, it gives us a massive pool of data that we can uh, look at and we can compare each other um, to. If everyone was using their own questionnaires, uh, we wouldn't be able to do that. Having said that, we're actually working on changing care response slightly. So we have a very parsimonious core set of uh, outcome measures. So, so uh, a, a key set of two or three questions that every patient gets asked, but then the ability for um, chiropractic clinics or, or doctors who are using it to actually choose from a menu of uh, outcome measures. And we're only going to include validated ones. We don't want what people have made up. They've got, they've got to have scientific um, validity behind them, uh, the ones that better suit their, the particular service that they're providing. Perfect. Now, how does care response uh, integrate to other systems or does it? Is it, is it a standalone system or, or can it integrate with electronic health records? At the moment, it's standalone. There is integration happening between us and some electronic health records uh, around Europe, in, in, in Norway in particular. Uh, and once we have that in place, it'd be very easy to open it up to other electronic health records. Um, so you know, if you've populated those with your patients' information, you'd be able to hit, hit one button on their service and it'll then load up care response and we can start collecting the outcome data for you. It gets quite complicated with uh, data governance is, is that we, you know, we, we can manage our systems. But as soon as we start handing over data to third parties, we then need to have contracts with them to make sure they're going to handle the data to the same sort of um, high degrees um, of security that we would expect and we're promising to our to our users. But in a, a, pragmatically, Dr. Smith, there's, there's no reason at all that can't happen. And I'm sure it has to be the way forwards. Wow, that is that is terrific. Um, do you have any video tutorials on how to use this system? We we do, but because Care Response is funded by me, and I haven't got a very deep back pocket, I, I can't afford to employ a lot of staff to provide um, support for the system for users. So we actually have quite a wide range of online tools uh, available on our website. So there are there's there's a range of instruction manuals. There's a list of tasks that people can work through, and you, you know, as you tick off the tasks, you can actually be confident that you've got competence in different levels of using care response. Or I have to say most users are using it within five minutes without any extra help. There's a series of um, web videos that you can click on, which will actually demonstrate for each of the tasks we've identified um, how to how to carry them out. Uh, and we have just in the last three weeks entered the modern era and have a Facebook page, which is very, very active. And there's lots of people talking there and providing support to each other. And, I, and I'm on that and I, I jump in when it's, uh, when it's appropriate. Yeah, terrific. And I've been on that Facebook page and it's uh, very helpful. So I'd encourage other people to to check that out. That's terrific. Well, bit and uh, start wrapping things up. I'd, I'd like to just ask you a general question about chiropractic and chiropractic research in terms of what do you see as some of the important issues facing chiropractic research today? I think we're seeing a shift in the focus of the way the whole healthcare world sees itself. Uh, I think we're moving very much into this age of what's called value-based healthcare. Uh, value-based healthcare isn't about the amount of care you give or what care you give. It's about the impact of that care on the patients and their lives. And in value-based healthcare, patients' experiences are really, really important, but they're, they're ranked as highly as the patient health outcomes. In every piece of research I've seen, chiropractic scores really, really well when we start looking at patient experiences. Um, in the two big RCTs in the UK, uh, looking at comparing chiropractic to hospital outpatient based care for spinal pain, chiropractic did better, but not massively significantly different in terms of the raw 
um, health outcomes. But if you if you actually dig into the studies and you look at some of the qualitative papers that came off the back of them, patients are saying things like, you know, when I saw my general practitioner and he gave me drugs, I was seeing somebody who wasn't an expert on the spine. They were giving me things to mask it. I didn't really want to take the medication. I was taking it under a certain amount of duress. Whereas those seeing the chiropractor are seeing someone who they perceive to be an expert, who had the time to uh, to listen and to really understand the patient. And when they're receiving the therapy from a, a chiropractor, they felt they're getting a care that was really, really appropriate. So patient satisfaction in chiropractic, in chiropractic is really, really high. And I, I think chiropractic ought to be focusing more at looking about, look, looking to capture some more information on patient experience measures to understand more about why patients are so happy with the care the chiropractor provides them. And we ought to be publishing it more because if there are two studies that come out or two services which are, which are investigated and they're found to have similar healthcare benefits the one's got slightly greater healthcare benefits than the other but one has dramatically more user satisfaction than in the modern healthcare world that's the service that's going to get published and i think chiropractic will be pushing on an open door if we start to look at that uh, and hand in hand with that is more qualitative studies i think rcts and numeric studies have a limited uh, value we actually need to start to talk to patients to find out what their experiences actually are uh, and that may give us some more insight uh, very well said beautiful can you offer any advice to aspiring students or chiropractors who may wish to become chiropractic scientists in the future? I think I'll give two pieces of advice. The first of all is watch out because it is massively addictive. <laughs> Once you start down, it is. I call it a journey for the terminally curious. You know, you, 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 there's, there's a certain beauty to research, to actually you know, asking a really robust question, you know, carrying out a study that actually answers that question. It might be quite limited and defined, but to ask that question, and you actually get the data, and the data actually tells you something that's really meaningful. It doesn't always answer all the questions that everybody would like us to, to, to answer, but there really is something very, very beautiful uh, and very pure about it, which there isn't in a lot of, a lot of the world. There certainly isn't in a lot of, uh, lots of health care. Um, so yeah, so, so if, you, if you start down this route, this route, prepared to be addicted, but it's not a bad addiction to have, and it will take lots, lots of your time. But there are much worse ways to spend time. Um, but pragmatically, I think the advice I'd say is, you really nowadays you have to be getting yourself a research degree. You, you go out and get yourself a research master's, or, or, or start on a uh, on a doctoral program. The scientific method and research is, is complicated, and it absolutely has to be rigorous. And you need that uh, academic grounding to. Um, uh, to, to, to start down the journey. Um, and, and if you're going to be a clinic-based researcher like me, form partnerships, form partnerships with um, academics. We have things that academics don't have. Clinicians see the world in a slightly different way, and that's a huge advantage. But they see things that we don't see, and they understand statistics, and they have access to resources that, uh, that, 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 that we, don't, uh, we don't have as clinicians. Oh, that is really terrific advice. And, and I must say that I've thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today. And you raised some excellent points. And I'm really excited for all of the great research you're doing and, and for care response and, and the potential that care response has to advance our profession. So really, uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Dr. Smith. You're, you're very kind. It's been an absolute pleasure from my end. Thanks for listening to another episode of Chiropractic Science. You might have noticed the music at the beginning of today's episode. I'm just trying to mix things up a little bit. If you like the music, let me know. If you hate it, I guess you could let me know that too. Bye for now.